Well, good morning. It's good to see you all here on this fourth Sunday of Advent. And for these past uh, couple Sundays, what we've been celebrating is the coming of God into our midst through the person of Jesus Christ. And we've looked how the coming of God into our midst brings hope. And how hope is this loaded word uh, that means we don't have the things we really wish we had yet, right? Hope means we don't have the things we really wish we had yet. But yet there is comfort and joy and hope. We looked at not only hope, but we looked in the second week at peace, peace with each other. For peace is always a relational term, and peace always comes through repentance and through seeking to right what is wrong with each other. In week three, we looked at love, and we saw the overwhelming love of God. You know, we saw the love of God that loves us no matter what at all times. This Sunday, on the fourth Sunday, we celebrate joy, the joy that God brings into our midst as we remember what he has done in the past and as it fuels our joy in the present. What I want to do this morning is I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 55. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 55. The passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is a very, very well-known passage. Um, It's very famous. It's called uh, the Magnificat, which means it is the song of joy that Mary sings as she interacts with uh, her pregnant relative, Elizabeth, who in her womb uh, is carrying John the Baptist, and in the virgin womb of Mary, the mother of God, as she bears Jesus. Now, it's a very unusual passage. I don't know if you've ever been around... um, you know, two pregnant women, as they get together, their babies in the womb usually don't interact, you know? And in this instance, it's the only time in all of the scriptures, besides one other instance, uh, which is very different between Jacob and Esau, that two unborn babies meet and kind of interact with each other. And it's a very unusual uh, experience that leads to a expression of joy out of Mary, the virgin mom. And so let's take a look at it with me. Luke chapter 1, verse 39. At this time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the country, hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. And as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary sang this song. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, All generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. This morning, 
What we are going to look at is very simple. We're going to look at one overarching principle, and we're going to look at three promises. The principle is this, that joy comes to those who rely on God's promises. Joy comes to those who rely on God's promises. And if you see, it's explicit in our text, verse 45. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill her promises to her. This is what uh, Elizabeth, mother of John the Baptist, says to Mary. Blessed is she who has believed the promises. And Mary breaks out in poetic song. This has caused some people to wonder, did she break out in this song just right away? Did she take some time and think about it and write it later? Who knows? These are the words of Mary. And the words of Mary uh, are very similar to all kinds of Old Testament passages. And we're not going to look at all of those. But if you wanted to look at one later, one that is very famous is is a passage in 1 Samuel chapter 2, where Hannah, the mother of Samuel, breaks out into song in a similar fashion, and there's very, very similar themes. If you came to me next week and told me where the themes were similar, maybe I'd give you a dirty donut even, you know? But nonetheless, maybe I'd give you a clean donut. Now, I never have donuts. They're full of calories. Now, what we are looking at is this principle. Joy comes to those who rely on the promises of God. And in Mary's song, she's going to reveal three of these promises. And I want us to to meditate on these promises. I want you to think about them, and I want you to meditate on them over this Christmas season. Joy comes to those who rely on the promises of God. As we start to think, I want to orient your thinking towards these promises by introducing you to this idea that even now, as Elizabeth and Mary interact, there is promise in the air, and here's what it is. The two pregnant mothers interact. The babies have not yet been born, right? And so Mary, as the very God-man, God-baby, grows in the virgin womb. Mary is filled with promise. Do you see this? Promise means very similar to hope. When you are promised something, it means you do not already have it. And yet, Elizabeth says to Mary, blessed is she who has believed The promises of God. Blessed is she who has believed the promises of God. There is a direct correlation between your joy and your belief in in the reality that God will do what he says. In the time frame when he is still not yet shown up in the ways that you would like him to show up and do what you would like him to do. Does this make sense? Joy comes to the person who believes that God will do what he says. And unusually, Mary praises God and brings joy for three promises. And she brings our attention to three distinct promises. And we're going to spend a few moments this morning reflecting on them. The first promise is this, that God is merciful to those who fear him. That God is merciful to those who fear him. We see this in verse 50. And in fact, the song, if you were outlining it, verses 46 through 49 kind of is talking about Mary's experience. Verses 50 to 53 is talking about the experience of everyone. And verses 54 and 55 are talking about the experience of the nation of Israel. But in verses 46 through 50, and especially in verse 50, Mary holds on to a promise that mercy, that God's mercy will come 
to those who fear him. Now, why does mercy get shown to those who fear God? A couple things. First, what is mercy? Mercy is when we do not receive what we deserve. We do not receive what we deserve. The main reason that only those who fear God are shown mercy is that those who don't fear God don't think they need his mercy. Does this make sense? I look at God, and when I think of my image of who God is, when I think of my image of who God is, I think of a perfect, loving, just, heavenly Father who is willing to extend his love and mercy to every single one of you at every single moment. Every single moment. He is loving and merciful in that he wants to do it, and he is just because he sent his son Jesus Christ to pay the price of our sins so that he could be both just and the justifier of all of us who are in so desperate need of his forgiveness and his mercy. And yet, there are all kinds of people in this world who say in their hearts something that goes like this, I neither need nor want God. I neither need nor want him. I do not need his mercy. And some of these people are sometimes people who are bitter, and some of these people are people who are self-righteous, thinking, I do not need the mercy of God, for I've got it together. Others are saying, I do not need the mercy of God. I may not have it together, but if God hasn't done for me yet, then I don't expect he will do it for me in the future. And so I do not need God, and I do not want God. And you've probably met people like these. The reason that God's mercy is shown to those who fear him is because those of us who fear God are the only ones that recognize that we need his mercy. And we beg him for it. And whether we feel it or not, at the time, God never says no to a prayer for his mercy. He never says no. There's a famous story, and I often refer to it, and it illustrates this point exactly. It's a parable that Jesus told, and usually I just uh, paraphrase it, but this morning I'm going to ask you to just turn your Bibles uh, a few pages over to Luke chapter 18, and I'm going to read to you verses 9 through 14. It's called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and you're going to see this point explicitly in the text. It's on page 851, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Notice how Jesus uh, frames this parable. To, those, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and who looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Isn't that an interesting narration? To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. I'm going to tell you a little something for free real quick. That description in verse 9 will never lead to joy. If you are a person who is confident in your own righteousness, and who looks down on everyone else, you are not a joyful person. Now, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. A Pharisee is simply a religious leader. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. A tax collector is simply the garbage of the ancient world. I say that and that may sound offensive, but I assure you that's how they felt about those people. They were the people that took their money when they didn't have to. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, 
And then with even more gall, or even like that man, the tax collector. For I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. We see in this text what the Pharisee is relying on for his status before God, don't we? His religious actions. I give, I give a tenth of what I own, and I fast twice a week. But the tax collector stood at distance. He would not even look to heaven, thinking the implication, he thinks he's unworthy. He would not even look to heaven, but he beat on his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. For I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who will exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who will humble themselves will be exalted. Mary, as the God-man grows in her virgin womb, is praising God for his mercy. The mercy that God shows to every single person who fears him. There is a religious way to look at others and look down on them like this Pharisee. And there's an irreligious way to do it as well. Out of bitterness and thinking that you do not need God or want him. But those people do not find God's mercy. And it is not because God is unwilling to give it. It is because the proud and self-righteous don't think they need it. And those who don't think they need something never go for it, even if it's right in front of them. The second promise that Mary clings to is the promise that God's power overcomes the proud. That God's power overcomes the proud. Just as we saw in Luke chapter 18 at the very end, verse 14, but God will make low the high and he will make high the low. We are told here that Mary clings to the promise that God's power will overcome the proud. We see it in verses 51 at the second half of the verse and verse 52 at the first half, where the text says, he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. This is a little different than 1 Samuel chapter 2, which I referred to a moment ago, where Hannah prays and says that you have seated the lowly with the princes here. Instead of the lowly having a seat among the princes and royalty here, those who are of royalty and high are being made low. For God overcomes the proud. Now, there's a theologian. His name is Miroslav Volf, which is Croatian, I guess, something like this. And he says something that goes like this. He says... The only way for a peaceful society to exist is to believe in a righteous God who will bring low the proud. He says it different than this, though. He says the only way to have a righteous society where people do not take vengeance on others is to believe that there is a God of vengeance who will make all things right. In fact, this is what we see in Romans chapter 12, isn't it? Where we are told, do not take vengeance on one another for God is the, venger, is the avenger of all who do wrong. Mary clings to a promise. Mary, as her unborn baby in this time of joyful delight, as the unborn baby grows in her, in her womb, as she celebrates God's mercy, the other thing she oddly enough celebrates is the reality that God 
And his power is greater than any other power on this earth. And that his power will bring low those who are proud. Have you ever noticed, you probably have, have you ever noticed that it is actually your fellow human being that has the most potential to steal your joy? Have you noticed this? It is our fellow human being that has the most potential to rob us of our joy. And it generally isn't kind, humble people that do it, is it? It is generally proud people who steal our joy. And the truth is, for me, sometimes I'm that proud person that steals someone else's joy. I wish to God it wasn't true sometimes, but it is. And we see at times that the only pathway to joy, it is the pathway of fearing God and repenting when we are wrong. But the proud don't bring themselves low out of repentance and confession. The proud are brought low by God because they do not see how they hurt others. Do you see what I mean? Hopefully you don't hear Bill's a, Pastor Bill's a horrible person, although at times I am. Hopefully you hear a spirit of humility that longs to confess and repent when I am wrong. And if we do not have such a spirit, we must cling to the promise that Mary clings to, that God's power overcomes the proud. I read something this uh, past week that I find incredibly beautiful. It's in a book called The Light So Lovely. It's a biography of uh, Madeline Lingle's life. And Madeline Lingle is the person, the woman who wrote A Wrinkle in Time and many, many, many other things. Uh, but she tells a story of going to church week after week. Now, one of the things I loved about reading Madeline Lingle's biography, and maybe some of you will remember this, uh, Madeline Lingle always felt like she had no home, it says in her biography. She was a Christian author that wrote fantasy, and the Christians thought she was horrible because she was talking about magic, and so they thought she was being like sorcery and stuff like this. And the uh, irreligious world that oftentimes didn't like her at all. The secular people thought she was too religious and the Christians thought she was too Christian. And so she often felt like she didn't have a place. But in this mix, one of the things I thought was so amazing about her life and her story was she continued to go to church. Week after week, she continued to go to church. She tells one such story uh, in her book of continuing to go to church. She says, I go to church because I need to stand next to other flawed people who are in need, of God great, in need of God's grace and be reminded that we are all forgiven. I need to come forward and take communion and recognize that the blood and the body of Christ are more powerful than my flaws. And to remember that the flawed people next to me need the body and blood of Christ and his forgiveness just as desperately. Isn't that beautiful? But that's not the beautiful part of the story. The beautiful part is, Every single week, she would go to communion. And uh, as many of you, you probably, you come, many of you come to church very regularly. And for some of us, we know each other really well. And for others of us, we don't know each other quite as well. But we see each other often if you're a regular attender. And she described the same dynamic at the church that she went to. And every single week, she would go and she had this loose acquaintance. And she knew that this loose acquaintance would often talk badly of people of Asian descent. And she always felt like that was a horrible thing. And yet she recognized her flaw. And every single week, they would go forward to communion. And she would see this person who was racist in the way that she talked. And she would see this person being 
receiving of the elements of the forgiveness of God through his son, Jesus Christ. And she reflected to herself, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I'm not going to read the book exactly, but I'm getting it pretty close. She said, instead of saying, and pointing to her friend who struggled with people of Asian descent and saying, there's a racist, they shouldn't take communion. You know what she wrote? She said, I wonder if there is in me too a flaw that I am too blind to see in myself. Isn't this beautiful? I wonder if there is a flaw in me too that I am too blind to see in myself. And I need to be reminded when I come to church and as we take communion that the And she says this, the only place to find joy is to recognize that we are flawed and we are forgiven. We are flawed and we are forgiven. She says in her book, at Christmas, when I'm with my family and my friends, I need to be remembered that we are flawed and forgiven. And when we come to church and we come to communion, I need to remember that I am flawed and yet I'm forgiven. Do you see how there is joy on the other side of that statement that doesn't exist in the uh, narrow-minded villainization of the people who are not living the way they should be? I'm going to ask it again. Does this make sense? For we are all flawed and we are all forgiven. God's power overcomes the proud, but Mary clings to a third promise, that God's goodness is shown to the humble. Why why not, Mary says? Why not, instead of being hard-hearted in pride and arrogance, why not humble yourself so that God will not have to humble you? For God's goodness is shown to the humble. Notice at the end of verse 52, he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. And he has sent away the rich empty. This often is is a theme in the Bible. It it sometimes is referred to as end time reversal. When things are as they should be, there will be a reversal of the order of things. And the proud will be made low. And the low will be made high. Right? It's kind of an unusual song, isn't it? It really is. It's an unusual song. If, if you were to find out, uh, if you were to find out you were pregnant, and so this is only applying to the females right now, if you were to find out you were pregnant, uh, you probably wouldn't break out in this kind of song, you know? You'd, ha- you'd have a different kind of song that you would sing. And yet, we are explicitly told that this is a song of joy, right? Verse 47 My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of me. Just a humble servant. Mary, the very mother of God, who gives birth to the Savior of the world through miraculous means. Through the virgin birth. And yet... Her song is not a song of, at least it was me that was chosen to bear the mother of, you know, to be the mother of God. Her song is a song of rejoicing in the goodness of God in light of her lowness. 
in the fact that God will make low the proud and make high the humble. The Magnificat. I've been thinking about this week, uh, this concept a little bit. Joy comes to those who rely on God's promises. And I've been thinking about how so many of the things that I long for as a person who longs, as a Christian, as someone who longs for God to return and to restore and remake this broken world, I've been thinking about how so many of the things I long for aren't yet the way they should be. Uh, T.H. White, um, I think I've got this right. T.H. White writes this book about King Arthur, right? And remember the title of it, The Once and Future King. That's kind of what we're looking towards. The Once and Future King. It's a play on words. The Once and Future King. For Christ has already come, and yet he is coming. And joy will be found for you and for me as we look to his coming with expectation, believing that it is the case. There are two ways to live in this world. We all, we all have a similar reality to deal with. Uh, I mean, our lives are different, but we're all in the same world. We're all experiencing similar things. Um, although our experiences can be very different. We all have the same promises, We can choose to believe them or we can choose to reject them. Joy is found on believing the promises of God that he will come again, for he has already come, that he will come again and that when he comes, he will restore and renew all things. And so this morning as we transition and as we move to the communion table, I invite you to come to the communion table with the same mindset of Madeline Lingle that I told you in that story, of the mindset that we are flawed and yet we are forgiven. I invite you to come to the table to partake of the symbols of Christ's broken body and of his shed blood as a reminder and as a physical active act of obedience and your recognition. That you do not have what you need in and of yourself to be made right with God. And yet, you can be made right with God because of the gift of his son. And we celebrate it every time of, every year, this time of year. That, though Jesus existed in heavenly splendor, he did not think of himself too highly. You hear that language from Philippians chapter 2? He did not think of himself too highly. He was humble. As weird as it is to think of the Son of God as humble. He was humble, and so he emptied himself by taking on humanity. And you know how that text ends? Therefore, God has given him an exalted place, a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even in the nature of Jesus, we see the expression of God making the low exalted.
the low exalted. And let me pray for you as we come to this communion table and as we do. Let us keep in our minds that we are flawed, but we are forgiven. And let us be filled with joy. Dear God, we are so grateful for your love. And I pray now, as we partake of the symbols of your broken body and shed blood, that you might use these symbols and this active uh, act to break our hearts of pride and to help us to see our need for you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.